Well, we're continuing in our sermon series this morning through the Gospel of Luke. We've subtitled Upside Down. I thank Nathan Robertson for his uh, craftsmanship and, and putting our graphic together. Um, if, you, if you can't tell, it, it is a sort of stained glass window of Jesus carrying the cross that is flipped upside down. So um, just sort of that's where we're going to be in this season. We're going to be working through the Gospel of Luke and the passages leading up to uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. Well, we ended last week, or we talked last week about this major theme that Jesus is in full authority. He is the greatest of all time. He's in full authority over all things, which includes the temptation, or the temptations and the schemes of Satan, the betrayal of Judas, the plot to arrest him, and we ended last week with this idea that there is nothing that's going to stop Jesus from fulfilling what Luke says is the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God who appointed Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever God's hand had planned, had God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. So this is a theme constant throughout Luke that Nothing is going to stop Jesus or get in the way of him from going to the cross. Luke introduces this in uh, chapter 9, verse 51. He writes, "When When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. That brings us to our sermon passage this morning. In our sermon this morning, we're going to work through this difficult passage. Jesus in agony and the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. But, but keep this in mind, what we were about to read does not change the fact that his face is set, that he has committed himself to the cross and to obedience to the will of God. We have to remember that. And so if you have your Bible, let's, let's open them to Luke chapter 22. We'll be in verses 35 through 46 this morning. If you want to use one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, that's page 882. You will need your Bibles this morning. You always need your Bibles, but you'll need them this morning uh, just, to, just to look at Luke chapter 22, and you might want to thumb over in Isaiah 53 uh, as well. Our title of uh, the sermon this morning is The Sword of the Servant, and the main point I want to consider is this, that Jesus is the servant of God who willingly endured the sword of suffering. If you're taking notes, after that sentence, he willingly endured the sword of suffering. You need to write, if you're in Christ, on my behalf. Those words, on my behalf. That's, if, if you are in Christ this morning, you need to know that he willingly endured the sword of suffering for you. He didn't regret it. He didn't do it reluctantly. But Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. He willingly did it for you, on your behalf. You are his joy. And to help us consider these points, we're going to look at the passage in the following outline. First, the identification of the servant in verses 35 through 38. And second, the willingness of Jesus to endure. So with that stand, please stand if you're able in honor of the reading of God's word. If you are not able to stand or it's uncomfortable for you, we ask that you just take a posture of reverence in your heart. Again, our sermon text is Luke 22. We're going to read verses 39 through 44 together. Um, Church, hear the word of the Lord. And he came out and went 
as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in great agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. Well, the philosopher Cicero tells the story of Dionysus II, who was the tyrannical ruler of the city of Syracuse in the 4th and 5th centuries B.C. And Dionysus was a bad dude. He was a, he was a, a tyrant king who ruled with an iron fist. And because he ruled in such a way, he lived under this constant threat of being betrayed and assassinated. And he took great lengths to avoid this, things you would expect, like surrounding himself with a team of guards and security. But he also wouldn't let a barber shave his beard, so he taught his young daughters how to, how to shave because he didn't trust a barber. And he surrounded his bed with a moat that you could only cross by a bridge that would be lowered and raised every evening and morning. Extreme precautions. And one day, his servant, this, this court flatterer named Damocles, came up to him And he said, why are you so miserable? You have everything you could ever want. You wave your hand and people bring it to you. You've got wealth and food and servants and gold. Why are you so miserable? And the tyrant king responded, you want to trade places for a little bit? How would you like to test drive all of this prosperity? And Damocles said, sure. And so he ordered Damocles to be laid on a bed of gold and appointed servants around him to watch his gestures and respond to his every wish and will. And he uh, made a feast of fruit and meats and drinks and put it in front of him. Sounds great, doesn't it? But it was missing one thing. Uh, Something fit for a king. So the, so the king, the tyrant king, hung a freshly sharpened sword from the ceiling by a single horsehair and suspended it over the head of Damocles so that he would know what it was like to live under the constant threat of danger and death. What do you think happened next? Suddenly, Damocles couldn't enjoy the feast. He couldn't gesture to the servants. He demanded, he begged that he would be released from his temporary pleasure. And Cicero summarizes the lesson of the parable in this way. There can be no happiness for one who is under the constant anxiety of fear and death. And there's a reason that this parable is so popular. If you've heard someone's references, they, they feel the sword of Damocles. That is what they're referring to. Or Shakespeare captures it when he writes that heavy is the head that wears the crown. Or you and I have expressed this feeling when we've told others that we feel like we're hanging by a thread. 
There's something about the weight of the reality that the sword could fall at any moment, that the other shoe could drop. That it's hard to rest or have joy or keep going. You're just distracted by the looming danger that's hanging over your head. And when danger is near, when we sense its presence, it's hard to give our mind to anything else. That's a reality. But here's another reality. In our passage this morning, Jesus sees the sword of suffering that was set apart for him from the foundations of the earth. He sees it and he stares it down and he willingly takes it on for you and me. Let's look at our passage together. Our first point, the identification of the servant, verses 35 through 38. So I mentioned last week that Luke wants us to view the events of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion through the lens of Isaiah 53, which we looked at in our call to worship this morning. There's a lot of things we could say about Isaiah 53 and point to some connections, but I want to focus directly on the quotation that Jesus uses in verse 37. Here, Jesus is identifying himself as the suffering servant from Isaiah 53, of whom it is written, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. That's our verse that we're looking at. Yet he bore the sins of many and he makes intercession for transgressors. So I want to keep this in mind. I want to keep Isaiah 53, 10 through 12 in mind as we read through this scene of Jesus. He's the suffering servant who out of the anguish of his soul is satisfied and making many to be accounted righteous. He bears iniquities. He's given the spoils of victory. Why? Because he poured out his soul uh, in, in death. He was numbered with transgressors. He makes intercession for them. God's will will prosper in his hand. And so what does that mean for our passage this morning? What does this mean for the disciples, for followers of Jesus? Well, first, it means that there will be difficulty in following him. Verses 35 and 36, And Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They responded, nothing. We lacked nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So what's happening here is Jesus is undoing or kind of calling back a command that he gave his disciples in chapters 9 and 10. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no money bag, no bread, and do not have two tunics. And so we know he's sort of undoing this because now he's calling them to take take a wallet, get a cloak, right? You know, take, take provisions for yourself. Now, he uses the word now, so... This idea that he's gonna, that's going to come up in, in verse 53 that we won't read this week, but we'll read next week. When Jesus is arrested, he's going to say that now is the power, the hour of darkness for, for Jesus' arresters, betrayers, the Pilate, who are going to have authority. 
But in Luke 9, the disciples had power and authority over darkness. So now, Jesus is saying, in this hour, this present hour and power of the power of darkness, the disciples are going to need some provision. They're going to need a way to defend themselves. They're going to need a way for them to have some money. In other words, it's going to get rough. The days ahead will be marked by the need for vigilance in the face of conflict. Their, the rest of their lives are going to be ones that are marked by a need for swords more than a need for cloaks. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. They were in danger, but they were protected because the appointed hour had not yet come. In his arrest and trial and crucifixion, Jesus will be numbered with transgressors and taken away from them. They will still be sheep in the midst of wolves, but for a moment in the hour and the power of darkness, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. So that's what's going on in this passage. And so for practical reasons, the disciples need a means for defending themselves. They should not just be easy targets for physical assault. But there is something more than practical that's going on. Look at verse 37. This is the quote from Isaiah. For I tell you that the scriptures must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So Jesus is saying that not only is he going to die, not only is he going uh, towards the cross, he's going to die a criminal's death. He's going to be treated as an enemy as a threat to society. In other words, the, to the disciples, this isn't going to play out the way you think it's going to play out. They're going to treat me as if I'm a criminal. And they're going to treat you the same way. But the disciples, like us, have a hard time putting this sort of spiritual piece together, right? So they say, verse 38, Look, Lord, two swords... And he said to them, it's enough, which is not like two swords is enough, but that's enough of this sword talk. You don't get it. We're moving on. Which is why I think that there's both a practical, he says you need them, he says you need the swords, you need the wallet, but there's also a spiritual reality. And it's hard to tell if they're complaining, like, look, we only have two swords. Or if they're excited about it, hey, two swords. But Jesus' response indicates swords are useless for this battle. As Paul says, their battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, powers, and spiritual forces of evil. This is the will of the Lord. The Scriptures must be fulfilled in Christ. And so Jesus is the servant who is committing himself to the will of the Lord. It must be fulfilled in me, he says. He sees the sword of suffering, and he is willing to endure it, which is our second point. So he's the servant who willingly endures the sword. Point two, the willingness of Jesus to endure. So before we begin, just to make a comment that all of Scripture is breathed out by God, and we, walk, we, we treat it with reverence and humility as if it's, as it, as it's God's word to us. There are also some passages of Scripture that we don't just waltz into and and that we come to even more humble and even more broken and even more dependent on the Spirit. And this is one of those passages. In the history of, of, of Christianity, this has been a text that has been treated with the utmost solemnness and sacredness. So we want to make that our posture. So if you sense a, a tone change, that's what's happening. 
We're going we're to handle this text with, with respect and reverence that it calls us to. But verse 39, look at the willingness of Jesus. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. So Luke tells us at the end of chapter 21 that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, he would often spend his evenings on the Mount of Olives praying, sometimes with his disciples. This was a pattern. It was well known. His disciples knew the place well. Judas knew the place well. And so we see that he's not hiding. He knows his betrayer has, been, has, has done the deed. He knows they're looking for them. He knows this is the hour of the power of darkness. And he goes to the very place where it will happen. He's not trying to hide. Verse 40, And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. So not only is Luke wanting to show the willingness of Jesus in setting his face towards the cross, but he also wants to do this sort of demonstration of the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. They are the ones who stand with him in trials, he says in the verses above, even though they don't always sort of get it or figure it out. And he tells them to pray that they may not enter into temptation. He's already warned them about the danger that's coming, about the the threat of temptation, about how they will fall away, about how he's prayed for them. So they they already know about the schemes that that are being plotted against them. And he prays that they would not enter into temptation. So for Jesus, it should be for us, prayer is the remedy. It is the answer. It is the refuge for solace when the looming sword of temptation and doubt and danger is hanging over you. Do you believe that? Jesus certainly believes that. Simon, Satan, Satan is, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you all, but I have prayed for you. Sit here and pray that you may not enter into temptation. But if we're honest, prayer is often not the typical reflex that we have when we sense danger. How do we tend to respond when danger is at hand? Fight or flight. It's typically how we talk about things. Fight or flight. We either uh, dig our heels and defend ourselves and muscle through it and fight back or we retreat and try to preserve ourselves, cower, run away. We either beat our chest or beat ourselves up. But prayer is both the strongest defense we have to fight temptation, and it's the only sufficient refuge we have to find solace in. And growth as a follower of Jesus means experiencing less of a reflex to figure it out on your own or beat yourself up and run away and more of a reflex of running to God in prayer. Amen. And that sounds simple, but it's, it's really difficult. It's difficult when we don't know what's coming. Like, I, I feel darkness in the air. Jesus tells me to pray for temptation. I don't know what's around the corner. Is two swords enough? But it becomes an impossible difficulty when we see the depth of prayer that Jesus commits himself to as both an example for us to emulate and as the one who truly suffers in agony on our behalf. Verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So I say it's an example for us to emulate because Luke wants to make this connection. He, he puts Jesus' prayer in verses 41 through uh, 45 here, and then he brackets the prayer with the instruction to the disciples to pray that they would not enter temptation. So Luke's wanting to make a connection between those, those two commands, or those two instances, pray without temp- that you wouldn't enter into temptation, and Jesus' prayer in the garden. And so it's a prayer for us to sort of to pay attention to and to emulate. Now consider the petition of our Lord. Petition one, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The second petition, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There's a couple of things we have to say. First, everything that we said last week is absolutely true. Jesus Christ is the greatest of all time who is in full power and authority, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, who tells the demons and the devil, you can come this far and no further. All of that is true. He is the second person of the Trinity, the divine son of God. He is fully God. And at the same time, he is the son of God who took on flesh. He is fully human. And he, as one who is both fully God and fully man, he has both a divine will and a human will. And as full human, he chooses and acts as a man in accordance with his human will, which means that when he experiences hunger, he's really, truly hungry. When he experiences joy, he's really, truly joyful. When he experiences agony, he's really and truly in agony. That's important. And we see both his full humanity and his full divinity on display in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the first petition, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The fullness of his humanity. So I want you to listen closely. Jesus is not reluctant to endure the cup. He's not like, I guess I'll do it. It's not what's happening. He's not trying to get out of it and do something else. He doesn't regret the decision that he's made to commit himself to the cross. That's not what's taking place. Jesus knows the divine will. Verse 37, it must be fulfilled in me. And then he willingly goes to the place where it will be fulfilled. He knows the divine will. But at the same time, in his humanity, he is staring down the sword of suffering, the shameful death in the place of sinners on the cross for God's enemies, being treated as an enemy. And in that, he prays that the cup of wrath might pass over him. Not reluctance, not not a scheme, not regret, but humanity. Who wouldn't pray that prayer? Martin Luther, in talking about this passage, says it serves us in this that we note how he is a true natural person who had a true human body and a real human heart because death also terrifies him. For it is the way of our inborn nature and of our real bodies to be horrified by death and to not die gladly. But like the ram caught in the thicket, who took the place of Isaac in Genesis 22. 
like the sacrificial lamb whose blood was poured out and protected the firstborn sons of Israel while the wrath of God passed over them. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb who was slain from the foundations of the earth, the servant of the Lord whose will it was to crush Him, and for the eternal Lamb of God there is no other way. No other way for what? For us, the enemies of God, to be made friends of God. It's amazing. Jesus must take our place, bear our iniquities, suffer the sword on our behalf. There's no other way. Which is why he resolves in the second petition, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You know what that is? That is the human will of the Son of God submitting himself to the divine will of the triune God in perfect obedience. It is in demonstration of the, His divine power that our Lord sees the wrath of God face to face, truly suffers under the anxiety of its imminent reality, and at the same time resolves in His will to submit Himself in obedience to the divine will of the Father. It is His divine power that enables Him to bring His human will in obedience to the divine will. Divine power that Paul says we have through the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. Apart from the Spirit of God, I don't know how we understand that kind of grace and power. And in the same way, I don't see how we make sense of what comes next without the Spirit's help. Verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Notice that Jesus is not rescued from his suffering but that he receives heavenly strength to endure and pray more earnestly. So friends, we can say that it's never inappropriate to run to God in prayer when we're anxious. It's never inappropriate to run to God in prayer when we're troubled or perplexed or when we're suffering. We must run to him. We have no other refuge. There's no other place. But if you're like me, sometimes it's tempting to think, you know, if I just sort of, if I say the right prayer, if I say the right words, if I tell God what He wants to hear, then, then relief will come. You know, if I, if I say, Thy will be done, like then relief will come. But that is not what's happening. And we must follow after the example of our Lord. It is not a matter of what we want. It's not a matter of our will, but a matter of submitting ourselves in obedience to the will of God, which means you might not get relief. But God will give you heavenly strength to endure. And if you think that's a cruel way for God to deal with you, consider the agony of Jesus on your behalf, in your place. Verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You know, it's not insignificant that in Luke's gospel, Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane is the bloodiest event. In his prayer and agony in the garden, Jesus is bearing the weight and consequence of our sins as he faces down the sword of suffering. Remember Isaiah 53. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. 
He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He is both bearing our sins and making intercession in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does that mean for us? It means that Jesus Christ took upon himself the agony of the wrath of God reserved for us, the enemies of God, so that you and I don't have to live under the agony of the sword of suffering. Friends, we have a Savior who is both fully God and fully man. He willingly took our place and endured that which he prayed would be taken away from him in order to fulfill in perfect obedience the Father's will as our representative for our sake on our behalf. Divine power enabled him to do what he did not want to do in his humanity. He did that in our place. Which is why the author of Hebrews is able to write, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. If you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus, listen to me. Jesus Christ knows your agony. He knows the sleepless nights, the cries behind closed doors. He was counted as a transgressor and knows the gut-wrenching pain that comes with being considered an enemy of God. He knows what it's like to live under the looming shadow of the sword. He knows because He took them upon Himself. But friend, you will continue to live And you will one day die under the anguish of the sword unless you turn to Christ and trust in His work, taking your place under the wrath of God. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, 17 and 18, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. The sword is hovering over them. It's hanging condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So come to Jesus, step off your throne, and let Jesus take his rightful place as the servant of God who willingly endured the sword of suffering on your behalf. You've got to step away from from that sword and let Jesus take his rightful place. He has done it and endured it on your behalf. And if you have difficulty wrapping your mind around that kind of upside-down grace, you don't have to have it all together. But you do need to trust in Jesus as the one who willingly took the place under God's wrath for all who believe. And the disciples didn't have it all together either, although they're starting to sink in. So they're watching Jesus pray in agony and realizing what sort of is at stake here. Verse 45, and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And so we see the contrast of the prayers between Jesus and his disciples. While he is enduring in prayer and bearing their agony and the wrath of God poured out for their sins, the disciples are asleep in sorrow. 
while Jesus is enduring through the strengthening of the heavenly angel and submits himself in obedience to the Father's will, the disciples have given up. They failed to endure. They will scatter and they will deny him. And it's easy to pick on the disciples, but remember Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We have all gone astray. We have all fallen asleep on God's grace. We have all tried to exchange sufficient agony for personal abuse. But listen to the grace of God in the gospel. Jesus is the servant of God who willingly endured the sword of wrath on our behalf. But he is also the servant of God who receives the spoils of victory over sin and death. Resurrection life. Because Jesus is the servant who willingly endured the sword in your place, then the sword of victory over sin in the grave belong to those who've been united with him in death through faith. Because of what Jesus has done, we do not have to live under the agonizing wrath of, the, of God's sword. But we are free to live happily under the delighting eye of God, the Father, who is pleased with us in Christ. That's what it means when the Bible says He bore our guilt and carried our shame. He took it so that we can live under the delighting eye of God the Father who is pleased with us in His Son. And we remember this every week. We come to this table and we remember that it was for the joy of the, of set before Him that Christ endured the cross, that He stared down the sword of suffering, that on the night that He was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, He broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, passed it to his disciples and said, Take and drink. This cup marks the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. Friends, our invitation here at at Antioch is to come forward and to form two lines and to take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. This sacred meal is a reminder of Christ bearing the sword on your behalf and how he nourishes you in the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. Take and eat in gratitude and joy and thankfulness. If you're a baptized believer, we invite you to participate in our observance of the Lord's Supper. If you are a Christian but you're not yet baptized, we would invite you to take the first step in obedience of baptism before participating. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we invite you to take Jesus, who's, who's carried the shame and guilt of all who believe. Would you come to him in faith and would you step away from the sword and let Jesus take his rightful place under it on your behalf? I ask that you would do that. There will be pastors in the back to pray and talk with anyone who's in need. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the truth, the glory of God and Jesus Christ carrying our burdens, taking our shame,
suffering and agony on our behalf. We rejoice that it was with joy that He endured the cross, scorning its shame. We rejoice that if we share with Him in His agony, we will live with Him in His joy. Father, we realize that this is difficult to believe at times. We pray You would make it real through the Spirit. That we would know in the assurance of our hearts that You are pleased with us in Christ. Would You make that known to us? Would You confirm that in our hearts? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.